What's going on, you mild-mannered macaques? Welcome to this week's episode of Total Pod Mode. My name is James, also known as Mr. Bames, and I'm joined, as always, by the wondrous Will, also known as Hoodafunk. Heyo! On this week's episode, we're going to do the usual catch-up. We're going to talk about a couple of news items. We've got some new announcements, maybe? Some mergers, maybe, or takeovers? But not that one. No, no. Different one. And then some good news and some bad news, potentially. But we'll get into all that. And then we join this week's Completionist Corner with a new game, of course, of finishing Death Stranding last week. What is it? It's Resident Evil 2. It's Resident Evil 2. Oh, we're not... Yeah, we're definitely not putting any uh, any bars on spoilers for this one. <laughs> oh, no, no, <laughs> Right no, out no. the gates. This week we played Resident Evil 2. No, no messing about. I want to let you know now. But for all of that, let's hit those socials. You can, as always, find the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts by searching for Total Pod Mode. We also post regular video content of our playthroughs, stream highlights, as well as the podcast on our YouTube channel, Total Pod Mode. You can also find us on Twitter by searching for at Total Pod Mode, all one word. And whilst you're there, you can find me at Mr. Bames, and I'm also on Twitch under twitch.tv forward slash Mr. Bames underscore TPM. And you can find me at Hoodafunk on Twitter, and I'm also on Twitch under twitch.tv forward slash Hoodafunk. Now with all that said and done, let's catch up, baby. So, Will, I don't think I really need to ask you what you've been playing this week. Well, certainly today, because I know some, something dropped yesterday that I know you were going to day one, and I'm wondering whether you actually got around to it. But as well as that, which I'm sure you're going to get into, did you play anything else this week? So I'll go ahead right and say that the headline is I absolutely picked up uh, Resident Evil 4 at midnight last night and nice, uh, got nice. it installed ready to play today. Probably won't spend very much time talking about any of the other games I played this week. Um, as always, I've been dabbling in a little bit of Stardew Valley, a little bit of Vampire Survivors. But uh, let's not waste any time. Let's delve straight into Resident Evil 4. So starting off with this game, we got a little bit more context into the introduction. The Chainsaw demo sort of drops you straight in. Uh, Leon is wondering where someone went, but you never saw where that someone went in the first place. Uh, leaving the car, and this time it's much more of a similar cutscene to the cutscene that you're used to in the original 2005 release. Uh, you're sat in the car with two police officers. One of them goes for a piss, and uh, they ends up sort of taking his time too long, long enough that Leon then leaves the car to go find him. After being prompted by the other police officer who's just chilling in the car having a smoke. Sounds about right. Why would he go help his own partner? <laughs> Absolutely. And it, uh, it very quickly devolves into a situation where Leon encounters hostile villagers and uh, has to fight his way through. I got all the way up to, uh, so people that are familiar with the game will, will recognise this, but I got all the way up to the point where you first meet Lewis. He's wearing a kind of an outfit that, uh, obviously, his last outfit, uh, to a lot of people, felt very out of place and uh, kind of felt like a very period outfit. They've kind of replaced it with a very flashy jacket now, so it's still got a layer of edge to it, but it's a bit more, uh, if you want to call it realistic, I guess it's that. Fair, I mean, I didn't have a problem with his last outfit. It was flamboyant, sure, but... It was fine. Yeah, I mean, the game, although it retains a sort of slightly cheesy feel and Leon has a lot of his one-liners, it even actually increases some of them. Like, he'll taunt enemies as he kicks the ladders down as they're climbing up them. He'll, you know, say stuff like, oh, did I do that? And stuff like oh, that geez. when he uh, knocks them down, which is quite funny. So I was enjoying that. I found it much harder this time around, but that's perhaps because I was playing it on hardcore mode. Um, right out of the bat. The game recommends that if you've played the 2005 version that you jump straight into hardcore mode, so that's exactly what I did. There's some things that we didn't cover on the episode where we spoke about the demo, but I've noticed for the main part that the knife combat 
and the parrying systems. I've been making a lot more use of those. When an enemy is just about to hit you, you kind of just hold the left bumper, uh, very much like Sekiro style, left bumper or L1, and uh, Leon sort of brings the knife up and parries the blow. Your knife has a health bar, which is upgradable via the merchant, but you'll also find kitchen knives throughout the game and maybe some other melee weapons. I'm not deep enough into it yet. So the kitchen knives, they function mostly like the uh, the regular standard issue military knife that you get. Presumably with lower durability though, right? Exactly, yeah. lower durability, yeah. But I've been finding them in quite high frequency, so it kind of seems like for the most part you want to be using those and preserving your military knife when you really need it. Yeah. Also, I was experimenting much more with the sneaking around in the game. You can now sneak and do sort of one-hit melee finishes from behind. Uh, now okay. to sort of clear out some of the village and thin out a bit that's making a big difference that's really cool that there's now a stealth attack mode as it were yeah it, it does pay off if you go through certain areas just sort of picking off one or two people it is you know eventually going to save you ammunition yeah. uh, obviously those stealth kills also affect the durability on the knife to varying degrees parrying using the knife to slash or stab or performing an execution will all sort of drain the uh the durability of the knife fair play so this game's got uh, quite a high level of violence in it, as I mentioned last time on the demo. The death animations in the game are particularly gruesome. The chainsaw guy, there's kind of a, a mixed one where he'll either shove the chainsaw into your belly and then sort of bring it upwards, up through your torso. Or the other one is where he'll sort of shove it through your back and then kind of like hoist you up into the air on top of it. Uh, so yeah, it's very gruesome. <laughs> The uh, enemies, they're quite varied as well because some of them have pickaxes and things to throw at you. Other ones are just attacking with fists and their attacks are more varied as well. Some of them shove you, some of them sort of run behind you and grab you so that another one can line up and attack. Enemies with pitchforks are really lethal as well because they sort of do this charge that you can interrupt with a bullet. But if they do charge you, they'll sort of just impale you with a pitchfork as well. So it's... Yeah, it's, there's definitely, it feels like the enemy variation gets worked in a little sooner to really great effect. That's really nice to hear because one of my big objections to the original was the enemy variation wasn't brilliant. This obviously may be something that Resident Evil 4 Remake also has an issue with, but a lot of the late game enemies were essentially just souped up versions of the villagers. They had stun bats, yeah. but a lot of their animations were similar. Even the guys in the castle, they just had more health, but a lot of their animations were shared. Be interesting yeah. to see just how much of that carries on. You also encounter visible signs of the Las Plagas parasite earlier on in the game. I think previously there is a section where it kind of it gets to nighttime and their eyes start glowing, and yeah. occasionally there will be a chance that if you shoot one in the head, that the parasite will burst out in this one there are enemies they don't yet have the parasite bursting out of their head but if you kill them they start to undergo a semi-transformation you can tell that it looks like the parasite is trying to sort of fight its way out of their body and it kind of starts to push its way out of their neck to the point where it displaces their head so their head's sort of hanging but not decapitated and you can see tendrils of the parasite sort of coming out of the neck uh, and they go into a bit of a frenzy mode they kind of just run swiping at you so 
you've got that as well as an added layer that occasionally you will have that issue to deal with as well and it sounds like it's been like a more gradual introduction as opposed to like you say you finish a level and then suddenly it's nighttime and things change exactly that yeah it's a bit more of a gradual introduction and you're definitely getting a sense that uh the villagers aren't just sort of humans like whenever you shoot them in the head with the shotgun or something or cause their head to explode then you will see the uh the parasite come out of them i think they did have that in the original one but it's done to again to better effect in this which you'd expect to be fair using explosives is particularly brutal as well you can be blowing people in half you can blow off limbs and things like that so that yeah they've really stepped up the violence in comparison to the original one but it is much more in line with the the recent remakes as particularly resident evil 2 which we've been both playing as part of completionist corner that's quite a violent game as well Surprisingly, the music in this game is really stand out for me as well. The music that was playing during that initial village encounter where you eventually get chased by a guy with a chainsaw, that is uh, really, really intense. It's kind of electronic, which is surprising given the context. Yeah, it's that kind of pumping. Weird, like, yeah, it's um, it's not quite, I don't want to say dubstep, but it's there's something going on there. It's like, uh, yeah, it's kind of, okay. it's it's works well with the, the, the mood of the scene in terms of, how much pressure you're under to mitigate this kind of seemingly endless lot of villagers that are chasing you out of their town. Yeah, nothing nothing says uh, villagers chasing someone out of a town than a little bit of hardcore dubstep in the background. Yeah. <laughs> also, the controls uh, for me were quite standout. Leon feels a little bit more agile than he does in Resident Evil 2. He changes direction a bit faster. His melee attacks are much more effective. They The kicks that he does whenever you stagger an enemy, you can run up to them and then execute a melee move. Also, if you knock an enemy onto the ground and you have a knife, you can also execute a melee finisher on the ground with your knife. Uh, so there is a lot more options that you've got now. And I cannot wait to attempt to sort of like a knife only new game plus. Once I've upgraded the durability and the yeah. power of the knife, you can upgrade also the, the damage that it does. I'll very much be looking forward to trying to do a knife only run somehow. With the 2005 version of Resi 4, uh, you told me a tactic about getting someone staggered, running up to them and then knifing them in the head and that being quite a good way of knocking them back into others to crowd control? That's right, yeah. Is that still a thing? Yes, it is. Absolutely. You can. So the, the tactic is to typically shoot an enemy enough in the head so that they stagger, then you run up to them and kick them, and then that will knock them on the ground as well as either stagger or knock nearby enemies on the ground as well, and then at that point you can run over and knife them on the floor before yeah. they stand up. Uh, yeah, that absolutely still works. It's totally a viable tactic. It feels maybe a little bit less overpowered than it did in Resident Evil 4, which, in my opinion, can only be a good thing because once you get into the rhythm of it, it becomes the de facto technique, whereas I think that you have to consider your approach a little bit more in this modern remake. Particularly with the knife durability as well, I'd imagine. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's a consideration. Do you really want to be wasting your knife on slashing people on the ground? when you could be using it to parry a guy that's running at you with a chainsaw. <laughs> you know? Also, the game feels extremely familiar, and the way that the map plays out is very recognisable, but the way that they've managed to make it feel fresh, which I think is really interesting, is that a lot of the areas you actually end up starting at the end point of the original one and working your way backwards through the section instead. Okay. So the section is completely recognisable, you know exactly where you are, but at the same time, it feels completely fresh because you've never had to go from B to A before. No, that's an interesting way to do it, as you say. Because it's not like they're reusing the assets, presumably. They will have had to design it from scratch like that. So, yeah. thinking. 
This game is fantastic looking, I will say. It's a big step up from the graphics in Resident Evil 2. Uh, and I will say that the graphics in Resident Evil 2 remake were, were really nice as well. They were. Maybe bar some of the facial animations, but they have nailed everything in uh, Resident Evil 4 remake. Leon's looking his best ever. His jacket is looking as good as his ever looked. <laughs> no, that's the main thing. That's what we really care about. Does his hair flop? His hair does flop. Amazing. It does quite a bit of flopping, actually, even in the initial cutscene. So that was the bit that I was referring to in the previous episode, where you get to see a little bit of a knife fight between him and Krauser while he's covering the history. The game does a better job of explaining how Leon ended up going from being a rookie cop on his first day on the job to uh, now working for the US government under orders of the president. That's good, because whilst it wasn't something that I picked up as a plot hole or anything like that, it did seem a bit random. Mind you, I didn't know too much about the previous game at that point, so... I did know that in Resi 2, Leon was on his first day, and then suddenly the next time you see him, he's working for the president. It seemed a bit odd, but I just assumed... Video games. He saved the day last time. Yeah, Makes pretty sense, much. Right? Yeah, yeah. He's just a hero guy. I mean, although he is a puppy dog in Resident Evil Two, he's now kind of like a, a snarky badass in Resident Evil Four. Yeah. Another new feature, which revolves around the merchant, and uh, first things first, they did not keep the voice of the original merchant, which might be a great disappointment to some. However, they have kind of carried on the essence of what he sounded like. He does say a lot of the same lines. And he delivers them in a similar way as well. So, you know, there is that as well. It's not word for word the exact same recording, or they haven't used the same sound bites, but the voice of the merchant still does feel both new and fresh and very nostalgic at the same time, which is great. It sounds like that's the theme they've sort of gone for for the whole game, so good times. Fans of the game will probably remember the early section where you need to shoot a load of blue discs that are hanging around one of the early levels to get the merchant to give you a punisher. Yep, very handy indeed. Very handy, very good early game weapon to be securing. But the merchant also has other missions amongst the one where you need to shoot the blue medallions, and those don't actually directly earn you the Punisher anymore. They earn you diamonds that it appears that you can use to buy weapons within his inventory. So there right. is a second inventory screen where you don't use pesetas, which is the, the currency in the game similar to gold or, or dollars. Or the Spanish peseta from back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. Shout outs to defunct currencies again. So the the separate currency that you earn for doing these missions and these missions can be shooting blue discs. Uh weirdly, I kind of I got bored and shot a rat and then up on the screen popped one out of three. Yeah. And I thought, oh, oh right, okay. So then I had to spend the rest of the time looking for the other rats. Had to. Had That's, to do it. Had to do it. Yeah. Well, it earns you this special currency that you can use to unlock things like the Punisher. So naturally I did go ahead and buy the the deluxe edition that gives you a load of upgrades. It gives you additional character costumes the romance costume is the one i saw that was a bit like huh it's very fancy yeah the romance costume kind of looks like a play on what lewis's old costume looked like yeah. but then it gets way more extravagant with the haircut i didn't see the haircut i just saw a bright white shirt yeah it's um the skins are pretty wild in this game i'm a little bit sad that they didn't just move over all of the skins from resident evil 2 paid dlc in a few months mate don't worry <laughs> could well be or it may well be so within the game after completing the game you earn a separate currency again called completion points these right. completion points can be used after the completion of a playthrough to unlock things like character models, weapon charms, but you can also use the completion points to unlock character outfits, 
which is really yeah. cool as well. So there is actually some more stylish things that you can actually unlock as well. So I'm looking forward to finding out what those are. There's also a couple of secret weapons as well to unlock through the completion points. So it gives you a lot more replayability because you get stuff to unlock each time. Yeah, it's uh, definitely got a lot of replay value there. There is going to be loads to unlock in between playthroughs. Plus, obviously, I'm assuming there will be a new game plus where all of your weapon upgrades that you can get from the merchant will still feature in the game. If you are able to fully upgrade in Resident Evil 4, the original, you then unlock an exclusive upgrade, which is just kind of like your gun just evolves into an absolute beast regardless of what it was before. And I'm looking forward to finding out just how all those weapons work on this one. Also looking finding out whether it's possible to take on your tactic, James, of just buying a rocket launcher for every boss. I was about to say, and I'm looking forward to hearing how that is. I want to know if everything still gets one shot. I have a good feeling that if it is possible, they will very likely be one shot, if not with like a blip of health left and you can finish them off with the pistol. Good stuff. It's the way to play the game, really. So, man, I mean, I suppose the main takeaways there is this seems like both a very faithful recreation with a great blend of new content as well. There's additional jump scares. Things work out slightly differently, but they're the same. It's a very, very good mix of everything we asked for, plus a little extra as well, a few surprises tucked in there. So in my eyes, uh, Resident Evil seems to benefit from really fantastic remakes. I think RE1 Remake, RE2 Remake, and 4 are all fantastic. Really, for me, that should be the benchmark for all remakes in the way that they handle those games. I think that they just, they've done it the best it can be done. I can't disagree with that from my experience with Resi 2, not that I played the first one particularly, and what you've said there. Sounds like they've absolutely knocked out the park so far, and hey, I look forward to hearing more about how you get on. See if there's anything that ends up being disappointing, seeing if there's more that you just bought love it's gonna be great man i think you're gonna have a good time with it yeah i'll be coming back next week with some more news what about you man what have you been up to this week other than playing resident evil 2 of course i continued my odyssey into wo long this week and i by continued i mean finished <laughs> um i managed to complete wo long uh on sunday actually so it didn't take me that long in all in probably about nice one th- man. three or four days all in but i was sessioning yeah of course well i mean that's just a sign of how much you were enjoying it as well if you can't put it down yeah, it was excellent. I, I thoroughly enjoyed every moment of it. Did spears carry you through to the end of the game? No, yeah, I used a spear for a little bit, but I actually ended the game with uh, using dual swords. Oh, okay, okay. Fast slashing, are they? Fast slashing, great combos, builds up stamina damage really quickly, which is the equivalent of posture. Um, so just meant you can hit those crits a bit easier, uh, and it was just super satisfying, because the way the game moves, and with the parry mechanic and stuff, you can just sort of waltz around the battlefield, dancing around. It was the same with the staff, to be honest, it was the same sort of deal. Relatively decent range for a quick weapon, and just you just dance around, it's so fun. Nice. I didn't 100% it quite, but I put it down having finished all of the sub quests all of the main quests i even went into new game plus to try and kick the first boss's ass again and uh, i lost a couple of times but i did kick his ass again you mentioned last week that the first initial boss was was quite a challenge how does he rank now stacked up against the rest of the bosses in the game uh probably in the top two hardest right okay yeah they started you off real brutal i like that though that's cool the only other boss that gave me huge trouble was more in hindsight because my equipment was underleveled. <laughs> right, okay. Because I yeah. fought that boss a couple more times as both a mini boss and as a, an enemy, just a mob, and I kicked its ass with better equipment. So maybe some of that was struggling so much that I learned the moveset. But I, so you could actually make the argument that the very first boss is the hardest boss in the game. Because by the time I got to end game, possibly my only slight criticism, but I don't know if it's the game or just because 
my background was Sekiro and I just, you know, I sessioned this game, like I say. Yeah. I, I think I'd first timed the last five bosses. It was so intuitive, so fun, and I cannot wait for June when the first DLC drops. Oh, it's already been confirmed, has it? Yeah, there's, well, it's not confirmed confirmed, but there's three DLC coming out, one in June, one in September, and one in November, I think it is listed on the steam page and i got the season pass as part of the balls out deluxe edition so you're just waiting at this point yeah I'll, I'll be jumping straight back into that and when i'm playing that again i will probably use that as an opportunity to tidy up the last few things i need to do to 100 percent the achievements and maybe even carry on in the uh, new game plus because honestly it was such a blast the only reason i'm not still playing it is because i thought with the dlc coming i would move back to neo for a little bit and try and do the DLC in that. Oh, okay. So you've stepped back into Neo as well this week. Well, so I did, but it turns out that in Neo One, at least, I would need to grind for equipment before I'm of a decent enough level to even attempt the DLC. And the reason right, I say okay. that is because I did. I've done the first mission of the DLC right up to the boss. I got into the boss, and it's one-shotting me. If it hits me, I'm dead. There's nothing I can do because my equipment is new game equipment. And I think that because this is the complete edition of Neo, that the DLC expected you to have done New Game Plus, possibly even New Game Plus Plus, right. have appropriately leveled okay. equipment sure to then start DLC. This is kind of like the step up from, you know, Hunter Rank Armor to High Rank Armor. The uh, yeah. it's, it's incomparable. It's such a step up that you almost just need to secure anything within yeah. New Game Plus at first, and that'll be a, like, a decent enough leg up. Yeah, it's exactly that, really. And... Because I, I I bought Neo Two on sale, right? So I didn't. I thought to myself, I don't want to grind in Neo One to then do the DLC when I my hype could be better used playing Neo Two. So I decided I would start Neo Two. All right, okay, cool, yeah. nice one. So I have put about twenty hours into Neo Two this week, and it has been excellent. Last week I mentioned that Neo was very, very, very good indeed, but had a couple of things that I would have liked to have seen improved. So less using the same bosses over and over again, a little bit more enemy variation, things like that. I'm very, very happy indeed to report that Neo 2 seems to address those issues. Off the bat, there was a lot more enemy variation. The combat is still excellent. The, the feel of the game is still just as good as it was. Everything just looks better. There's a couple of new mechanics in there which make it interesting. There's a thing called the Dark Realm, which basically puts you into the demon realm because you know the whole premise of neo is that you fight yokei the, the demons mm, um, mm. but in neo 2 you get to create your own character for a start which is always great and the basic premise of the story is that you're half yokai yourself okay right sure thing so your power up instead of being like your guardian spirit imbuing your weapon and making You've got you a devil trigger pretty much you can have one of three forms based on what guardian spirit you pick and you turn into a yokai demon to have your invincibility like mode for a little bit it's really cool stuff nice and i take it so you're given that the fact that you've got character customization i imagine that you're playing as a different character canonically than uh who you play in the first game oh yeah absolutely um i believe it's actually set before the first game oh right okay okay i believe because the reason i say that is because one of the final bosses in Neo, as I mentioned last week, was um, Nobunaga. Yeah, yeah. And in this, and he's been dead for quite some time when you sort of, he gets resurrected and you fight him in Neo 1. In Neo 2, you actually, at least at the bit I'm at, which is relatively early in the game, I suppose, you're working for Nobunaga. Ah, okay, it's come full circle. So you're sort of helping him with his crusade, for lack of a better term, across Japan, trying to unite the country. But yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing how the story develops. It's very fun so far, and... 
just hats off to Koei Tecmo again. Very good. They've addressed all of the issues that you had that stopped it from being that perfect 10 from Neo 1. Exactly. And I'm loving it so far. I mean, I, I'm obviously slight bit of recency bias that I need to be a bit aware of there. So I'll probably check myself in a couple of weeks when I've got further in and see if I still feel the same. But right now, loving every second of it. And it's exactly what I needed having come off the massive high of Wolong. Because honestly, Wolong is comfortably my game of the year so far. Like, it's not even close. Hogwarts Legacy was excellent. Wolong is three times as good, at least, in my opinion. So the fact that Neo 2 is also great has really helped soften the sort of sadness I have that Wolong finished. (laughs) I think after Resident Evil 4 and then shortly after we're also looking forward to Tears of the Kingdom, my release radar is looking pretty sparse. So Wolong is first on my list for a download after I get through those two. If you enjoyed Sekiro, which I know you do, Wolong is just, it's sort of as satisfying as that in terms of the combat. Not as hard like Sekiro is a harder game but that being said I'm only playing on New Game. New Game Plus was a lot tougher in the first boss so New Game Plus going forward might be even tougher still. Would you say you found Neo harder or Wolong harder or Neo 2 harder? Neo and Neo 2 are obviously very similar because they mechanically function almost exactly the same. Sure thing. I think that with my recency bias I'm going to say Neo 2 is slightly harder but that's just because I think the initial bit when you're low leveled is a lot like the enemies are a lot more brutal like in level 1 of Neo 2 there's a completely optional enemy you can take out who's basically a boss that's just wandering around and you can get he's like maybe the second enemy you encounter in the whole thing. Right okay. Now me being a sadist I took it on and I actually beat it fourth go I was quite happy with that. Nice. But in Neo 1, you never got anything quite so brutal in the, within the first, li- literally the second enemy, as I say. So you, you didn't get anything quite that brutal. As we get into it more, I think it's going to level out and be similar difficulty to Neo. And I think that I'll leave Neo 2 off, off the Wolong discussion because I haven't finished it yet. But I would say Neo is harder than Wolong. And given that obviously Wolong is a much more recent title and you're now going back to playing Neo 2, are there any features that you're sorely missing from Wolong in Neo 2? I think probably the only thing that I could even remotely say I miss, and I don't miss it, but it was just convenient, was in, in Wolong you can respec for free whenever you want oh yeah that's always a nice sort of yeah it tends to be in more modern games as a uh, quality of life sort of thing and the other thing is that from wolong when you get to your your bonfire equivalents you can if you're in a main battlefield so a main mission you can leave that mission go do another sub mission go back to your hub do whatever if you teleport back into that mission you will be where you left off whereas in neo if you quit the mission you go back into the mission, you're starting the mission again. Okay, yeah. Both things that I don't miss necessarily, but would be just nice. They're all great games though. I you know, I know that you've dabbled with Neo a little bit. I thoroughly recommend both Neo and Neo 2 and Wolong, like if you like Sekiro, buy it. Just just do it. It's Damn. Several glowing reviews from James this week. Yeah. Koei Tecmo are well, I'm not gonna say they're knocking it out of the park because obviously I've played three games that were released years apart from one another, but hey, in my opinion, they're excellent. Well, I mean it sounds like they've knocked it out of the park with Wolong, so uh yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. Very, very, very good indeed. Would recommend and will play again. But no, so I think that about does it for the catch up, man. So with that all done, let's head on over to the news. <laughs> Thank you. 
So our first news story this week, Atari has announced that it has acquired the studio behind the upcoming System Shock remake and several remasters of classic FPS games. The studio in question is Night Dive Studios, who have previously worked with a number of publishers through its development of several remasters of classic FPS games, such as Doom 64 and Power Slave. According to Yahoo Finance, the deal is worth $10 million and is set to conclude by the end of April 2023. The announcement on Twitter of this has received mixed responses, with some fans wondering what it means to the development of the recently delayed System Shock remake or future projects from Night Dive. Now, this was an interesting one, I thought, because, and correct me if I'm wrong, Will, System Shock is the sort of precursor to Bioshock. So I never played System Shock personally. Did you play System Shock? I've dabbled with it very briefly. Uh, I was given an opportunity to play it years ago, uh, and it was only really off the back of the fact that I was aware it was the precursor to Bioshock. I felt like I just had to give it a check out, but certainly not really enough time to form any opinion on it. Other than the fact that you could clearly tell where some of the ideas had gone and transferred over to Bioshock. Are you excited about the prospect of a remake and does it make a blind bit of difference to you that it's Atari that are going to potentially be looking after it? Uh, so definitely no to the second one. I think that this is a partnership that is you know, perhaps more to do with uh, publishing capacity and, and funding for the studio, uh, this partnership. So I think in terms of that, I'm, I'm not too concerned. I'm interested to see what Night Dive is able to offer. It's a studio that I'm not really familiar with so i don't know about uh, too many of their uh, previous efforts but i think that there is definitely room on my schedule for a system shock remake i'm conscious that it's much more of a sci-fi take on the whole sort of action adventure rpg style of gameplay which i would uh, definitely be keen to give a go fair no it makes sense and uh, really i bought this story up a because it's interesting to see atari still kicking about must admit i didn't think they still did things like this but also yeah i wanted to get your opinion because i know that bioshock being one of your sort of top tier games if this is where it's all started i thought it might be of interest our second news story is that after weeks of teasing, Valve have announced that Counter-Strike 2 is on the way. Even better news for fans of the series is that it will be a free update to Counter-Strike Global Offensive and everything will carry over. So that's all your progress, all your gun unlocks. Oh, your, damn, son. All that shit is all carrying over, apparently, right? I had no idea that it was actually a free update to CSGO. That is Me awesome. Actually, just thinking about it, though, is CSGO not free to play at this point? Yeah, it is, yeah. That's the whole point is they're keeping the free so to So Counter-Strike 2 is, in effect, free to play also. Awesome news. In an official statement from Valve, they confirmed that Counter-Strike 2 is the largest technical leap forward in Counter-Strike's history, ensuring new features and updates for years to come. All of the game's new features will be revealed when it officially launches this summer, but the road to Counter-Strike 2 begins today as a limited test for select CSGO players. During this testing period, we'll be evaluating a subset of features to shake out any issues before the worldwide release. Now that statement to me says that they're taking this very seriously indeed. They're getting obviously the player base to carry out a lot of the testing and they clearly care about their community because the fact that they're making this a free update to an already free game where all of your progress carries over, it's all very cool stuff I think from Valve here. Yeah, really, really cool news. And also I, I gotta say that just the choice of Counter-Strike 2, it kind of goes two ways for me. On one hand, this sounds like the fakest meme-ist news article ever. Counter-Strike 2 just sounds like something that shouldn't exist. It sounds like a f***ing meme. But then, at the same time, it just goes to show that they're actually putting a number two behind this. They're making that commitment of making it a numbered title 
unlike they did, interestingly, with Global Ops, but obviously they haven't done that for a while, considering that we had Counter-Strike Source following 1.6, and then from that onto Global Ops. So, you know, this is a clear sign that they are taking this one super seriously, and this is the biggest, latest, and greatest iteration of Counter-Strike. I think that's the message here. In the article we've got from PC Gamer here, they go into talking about like all the the technical advancements that I sort of mentioned in that statement. The volumetric smoke grenades in the game sounds absolutely insane. I actually got to see some rendering of that now. The way that smoke grenades function, this seems like a, a weird thing to be nerding out on. But if you throw a smoke grenade now, it doesn't just become sort of like a texture that emanates with a certain opacity in the surrounding area and fogs everyone's vision. It is actually volumetric smoke now. When you see kind of like a wireframe behind the scenes mode it just sort of bursts out a load of cubes that are represented by the smoke but it's so now that if you start shooting your gun you will actually shoot a hole through the smoke briefly that will then fill in uh you know as you stop shooting again and also smoke will be affected by things like explosions so if you throw a frag grenade in the middle of a smoke you'll briefly get rid of some of the smoke before it fills in again so i think that's really impressive that's gonna enable some really interesting plays and it will no longer be blindly shooting into the smoke you'll be able to place a smoke and then shoot a vantage point through it which will be very interesting to see how that's used by some of the high level players yeah very cool indeed counter-strike's been making some real cool steps even thrown down to the fact that you can sort of wirelessly defuse the bomb that was uh, an update that released quite some time ago now for global ops and it just sounds like they're putting more and more effort into refining this, into making it a more satisfying experience. And it's for sure given me a reason to go back and check out Counter-Strike again. I mean, it's been a minute since I last played Global Ops. Honestly, I think that the style of gunplay there is a little too hardcore for my liking. I kind of prefer a slightly more arcadey experience a la Battlefield or Call of Duty. But mad respect for the pros and I absolutely love to watch the Counter-Strike tournaments because the amount of skill and reaction times that they oh, yeah. have is unreal. Impressive. I'm not a Counter-Strike player personally. I've obviously, I have played it, but I have uh, a good friend who was very into it. Shout out to George. And I would be interested to get his opinion actually on whether this is enough to tempt him back in. So our third news story today is kind of a twofer. I'm giving you two in one here, but it's a tale of yin and yang. We've got a disappointment and a potential ray of sunshine. Intriguing. We'll start with the negative first, get the bad shit out of the way. Activblizz, Activision Blizzard, have announced that Diablo 4 on consoles will be getting couch co-op. Excellent. That was that was something that we were really really looking forward to hearing because we were wondering about it however in a bizarre decision in my opinion at least this feature will not be coming to pc now that is unforgivable that is shocking isn't it so those of us that were planning to purchase this on pc will have to settle for single player or online multiplayer only it's just completely inexplicable why they would choose to do this for this version Although there is actually a precedent of games doing this previously as well, where they actually have a split-screen version on the console, but then not having it on PC. Completely bizarre to me, given the fact that PCs generally tend to have stronger hardware in them than current-gen consoles if you're using up-to-date hardware, so I just can't can't understand why this is a thing. I, I really don't get this decision, because it's such an easy win. Like... I can kind of, kind of see the logic for typically, stereotypically at least, consoles being a more social platform, right? In terms of you invite people over, sit on your sofa, blah. But there's nothing to stop you putting it in so that I can unplug my t- my PC monitor, plug in my TV and sit on the couch and play. Like, it's 
just seems pointless to me to not include it if it's being included elsewhere. Unfortunately, I'm probably going to miss out on Diablo 4 now as a result. I, I don't think I'm going to bother. Do you think that's enough of a turnoff for you? Well, because I had reservations anyway, as I said last week or the other week, whenever it was we spoke about it, I've just got a feeling it's not going to be great anyway. And now there's no couch co-op on PC? I'm probably good, I think. I think that this definitely isn't enough of a news to put me off of buying the game because, honestly, I don't envisage myself actually using the couch co-op feature with the majority of people that I will play with. However, the fact that it was possible to do on Diablo 3 and it isn't possible to do on Diablo 4 is a real issue for me. I, I just don't understand why they would take away a feature like that that encourages you to play the game more. You know, it's it as it's just inexplicable. To put some ointment on that wound, hopefully, to make us feel a little bit better, there is a ray of sunshine in amidst this dark cloud. Speculative ray of sunshine. A From Software developer who has been working on Elden Ring, amongst other things, has updated their LinkedIn page, stating that they are working on a new game alongside the already announced Armored Core 6 and Elden Ring DLC. Now, this is almost certainly too early for anything like an Elden Ring 2, could it be the Bloodborne port for PC that we <laughs> Could it be? I mean, who knows? We can only hope, right? Could it be the Demon's Souls port of a PC? We can only hope. We can only hope. However, does any of this suggest that he is working, you know, in any capacity for FromSoft or Sony under any of those titles? Uh, FromSoft, yes. I don't believe Sony were involved, though. Ah, so he has actually. So this is kind of almost a bit of a, a semi-leak here that he's updated his profile to say that he is working on a, a third mysterious game alongside Armored Core 6. Exactly that. Right, okay. It is an unannounced From Software project. This is an interesting Apparently. way to find out that news. You know, we, we talk often about sort of intentional leaks or unintentional leaks. What do you reckon this one falls into the category of? Uh, neither, because it's too open-ended. I think it's just a, hey, from software working on another game. Cool. I, it's, not, it's, not, it's not leaking anything for me. I guess because I'm kind of, uh, you know, uh, very optimistic and keen on any title released by FromSoft. Honestly, just a trailer with like any cinematic and then the From logo coming up on the screen, that would be enough for me to be hyped for whatever they're working on. I mean, I've played very mixed and limited amounts of previous Armored Core titles, but I'm really looking forward to seeing how that functions. I'm conscious that it's going to be very different from Elden Ring and a lot of their other titles like Demon Souls, Dark Souls. It's level-based. Um, it's going to retain a lot of the features from the original one. But honestly, I just have faith in the engine of the game. I have faith in the storyline. I have faith in the way that they're going to execute the controls. And the customization for your mecha just looks really, really fun. I can't wait to hear more about that. Also, Miyazaki's involved. What's there not to like? Exactly. And uh, I can't speak for Armored Cores 3 through 5, but Armored Core 2 was excellent. So, don't know if I'll pick it up, but certainly not averse to doing so if it looks good. But, man, I really hope that this another unannounced game is the PC port for Bloodborne. Or, or Bloodborne 2. <laughs> Anything Bloodborne, please. Bloodborne cart. Bloodborne cart. Hey, it's better than nothing, right? <laughs> but hey, it's as you say, it's speculation, and it's really more me trying to put some sort of positive spin on the fact that Diablo Four is not going to have couch carp. It was the way to make myself try and feel better, and uh, it it hasn't really worked. But <laughs> no. I'm I'm going to grin and bear it. <laughs> I want to believe that it's a Bloodborne remaster, so that's what I'm going to believe. We can only hope, James. Hope and pray. And with that hope in our hearts, we come to the end of the news for this week. So now let's mosey on over to Completionist Corner. Here we go for the 
show in this week's completionist corner we're going to be covering resident evil 2 the story of leon s kennedy the resident evil 2 remake for those unsure yes the remake as will has said much much prettier than the original i imagine <laughs> definitely a lot less rough around the edges questionable control scheme addressed yeah well yeah to be fair it wasn't even something that entered my mind which shows that you're right so <laughs> You can now move while you shoot your gun, and uh, also... Yeah, you can move and aim as well. Yeah, God, God damn. wild, I mean, wild. Yeah, crazy shit, but you still can't move quickly, but we'll get... That's, the, that's probably a good thing for the style of the game, but... I think that they did retain some of that, or they kept the controls ever so slightly sluggish, so that you would, you know, actually get occasionally grabbed by the zombies. But no, so, as the resident resident evil expert i'm gonna hand over to the wondrous will here to kick us off and take us through the journey of leon s kennedy here so the story of resident evil basically covers the worst first day on the job ever so our story starts off with leon arriving outside a petrol station looking to top up i assume on some gas before he heads into town for his first day on the job however upon entering the petrol station immediately you can tell something's wrong all of the lights are off and there's a, a person standing by one of the doors clutching his throat he's clearly been attacked and is bleeding quite heavily from his neck uh, not what you want to see in the middle of the night either and in a very ominous way he sort of points without speaking to uh to the room just over there so leon uh is a rookie police officer he is armed a this point with a pistol and a flashlight pretty well equipped to deal with a situation like this he wanders into the other room and we encounter our first zombie of the game now this is the og george a romero style of zombies the sort of slow shambling zombies making all sorts of weird guttural and retching noises <laughs> yeah very classic they also kind of reach out to you as they walk towards you in the classic zombie way and occasionally run for no reason yeah occasionally a zombie will kind of get like a little charged and just sort of randomly lunge at you i think that's provoked generally if you get within close to their reach they either have a chance to try and grab you or they enter that kind of running lunging stage, which is yeah. very dangerous. And uh, quite frankly, you can get you in a lot of trouble in the game. Certainly can. But after managing to subdue the zombie with a couple bullets to the dome, uh, Leon picks up a key and is able to start exiting the petrol station, now realising that everything's gone to shit. On his way out, he's ambushed by a couple more zombies that have now woken up inside and around the back of the store and just before you manage to leave the petrol station you bump into claire redfield who uh for people who aren't familiar with the series that name will mean nothing however if you have played any of the previous resident evil one or five titles chris redfield is a prominent protagonist that features in both of those games quite heavily claire redfield is his sister so uh, after meeting up with claire and dispatching a few more zombies you hop in your police car provide Claire with a gun and you make your way into Raccoon City proper to go find out what the hell's going on. There's also a little bit of a scene that you're greeted to previously where there is a trucker munching down on a hamburger. In fact, actually, that's how the game fully opens up, isn't it? I don't know about you, James, but I really wasn't sure what I was staring at before he picked it up and started shoving it in his mouth. It looked more sort of a, a bit too grey to be a hamburger, Yeah, honestly. it looks unappealing and kind of rotten almost. I think that, yeah, yeah it's sort deliberate of... Deliberate almost that they did that, looking, making it look like rotting zombie flesh. Yeah, exactly. I think it's very deliberate that you're supposed to not quite be sure what you're looking at 
until he snatches it off the dashboard and starts chowing down. To be fair, though, even when he took a bite, I was still like, ah, oh, man, do you really want to it be doing that? It like, still doesn't look very appealing. Oh, no. I was like, is this how the fucking virus starts spreading? Because some brer ate a rank burger. Is that what? <laughs> but no, that's not the reason. <laughs> However, while he's distracted, munching down on his burger, he runs over someone that is foolishly standing in the middle of the road. Hits her at some pace as well. Oh, yes, he absolutely nails her in the heavy 16-wheeler truck that he's driving. Oh, for God's sake! Obviously, he hops out and very quickly realises that uh, she's not all quite there. After checking on the injured person, it actually turns out that they're a zombie and they manage to get a cheeky bite into his neck before he's able to get away. He then jumps back in his truck and races towards Raccoon City. Which is very dangerous given how heavily it's raining. And probably how heavily he's now bleeding from his neck. So, back to Claire and Leon on their way to Raccoon City. They're making their way down before they get surrounded by a group of zombies and stuck in sort of traffic mostly caused by abandoned vehicles. You look in the rearview mirror and you can see the truck with the driver who was bitten inside it now kind of deliriously driving down the road and unable to stop in time. At which point he then crashes into the police car that Leon and Claire only just managed to escape from. And that causes like a big explosion because his uh, his big truck is carrying, a, I think it's like a large petrol container. That's what it looks like for sure. One of them big old gasoline trailers. Shortly after the explosion, Claire and Leon then become separated on either side of the car that they've just been ejected from. I've got to say at this point in the cutscene, Claire takes a long time to answer Leon. He kind of, he shouts out asking if she's okay. A lot of time passes before she shouts back and responds. It's <laughs> yeah, clearly in there to add tension, but I think... Realistically, I would be chastising the person for taking so long to come back to me. What the hell, Claire? So after being separated, Leon then needs to navigate his way through the streets of Raccoon City, now without Claire, and he eventually arrives at the police station where he is supposed to be taking his first day of duty. And also worth noting, which is where um, sort of any communication that has been made over radio or anything is saying, go to the police station, it's safe there. Yeah, you can hear that sort of echoing as you run away from the streets, away from the surrounding zombies. And, uh, spoiler, that's a lie. It's definitely a lie. The police station is probably one of the worst places to go. Given that, you find out eventually through the events of the game that it is situated above the main cause of the virus that is now infecting all of the citizens and police officers inside the station as well. So after seeing a video feed of a panicking police officer at the front desk of the station, you then set off to find him entering one of the only accessible grill grates uh, that is blocking off one of the corridors to the police station. You flick a switch and head underneath, and you eventually find a police officer who is in severe, severe trouble. He's on the other side of another grate, which you are able to lift up and rescue him through. He's clutching something in his hand at this point, and as you try to drag him through, he is clearly getting munched on from the other side of the uh, the grate there, and eventually to the point where, and I guess these zombies have jaws of goddamn diamonds, the way they're able to tear through this guy, but... Leon's sort of pulling him, trying to rescue him, and he ends up getting pulled in half by the zombies on the other side. Very grisly scene, sets off the scene pretty well. This game, I would say, is is extremely violent in certain places, uh, in terms of the way that people get dispatched and the amount of attention to detail to some of the gore. So at that point, after failing to rescue the police officer, it's time to retreat back to the main hall, clutching the book that we've been given. 
We find out later on that this book actually contains solution to a series of very convoluted puzzles requiring you to travel around the police station collecting medallions. But the medallions are suspended underneath statues and each of those statues requires a three-symbol password to unlock them. The notebook that we've just rescued from the now split-in-half police officer contains the combinations that we need. So at this point, after heading back to the main police hall, we also encounter one of the only other people that we encounter in the game, Marvin. Very angry, Marvin. Yeah, Marvin's, he's pretty angry, he's pretty distressed. He has lost most of his colleagues, I think, during the battle for the police station against the zombies. He's also managed to pick up a goddamn zombie bite, hasn't he? Clutching at his chest. Well, it's not his chest, it's more of his, his belly, his midriff. Yeah, he is, uh, he's looking certainly worse for wear. He does, however, provide Leon with a knife, which we can now use to cut open a control panel, which we can use to now flick another switch. Apparently, Leon isn't able to pry off yellow sticky tape with his fingers. However, once again, video game logic. We are talking about a game that is a remake of a game that was released in 1998, I believe. Yes, but we're also, they did this in Resident Evil 7 too, so I'm not letting them off the hook for that. (laughs) It's a puzzle game and there has to be sort of like a certain level of acceptance that you're going to be doing certain things in the puzzle game that might seem slightly out of the ordinary or you're forced through trivial things that you'd be able to solve um you eventually manage to recover all of these medallions throughout the police station whilst also battling off a host of nasty zombies we also have the uh liquors in the game which are a sort of they look like a person with all of their skin stripped off uh brain exposed as well and they have these extremely long sharp tongues that they can lash out at you with and grab you they've also got extremely sharp claws on their hands and feet yes and they uh don't have eyes from what i could see which was kind of it gave them that look almost like the xenomorphs from alien that's correct that is a really good observation there they don't have eyes and they are very reactive to sound as a result so it is actually possible to sneak past these guys if you walk slowly enough However, if you just run round willy-nilly, you're going to get into a lot of trouble with these guys, and they will hunt you down and chop you up. So needless to say, I got into a lot of trouble with these guys, and they hunted me down and tried to chop me up, because my tactic in this game was essentially the same as my tactic when I did the Resi 4 challenge. Run past everything! Don't fight if you don't have to. Well, that's definitely a very good tactic to use in these games, in all Resident Evil games, in fact. If you can juke the zombie, or if you can stagger it with just a couple of bullets and then sneak round it, that is definitely the way to go i think that you probably actually have enough ammunition within resident evil 2 remake to kill every enemy in the game at least on standard mode however i think that it's a survival horror game you want to play conservatively and use the ammo when it really counts saving it for bosses and more challenging areas and because of another mechanic that we'll get into shortly you always want to have a better handgun ammo on you at least that's right yeah yeah so that so you can uh Stop a certain someone from advancing if you need to, if you get yourself in a real pinch. But I'm getting ahead of ourselves. So once you've managed to recover the free medallions from the police station, you can then unlock a secret passageway in the main lobby that enables you to travel underneath the police station through a bit of a sewer area and into the police station car park. Yes. So at that point, just before you leave the police station as well, we also look over to see that Marvin has succumbed to his wounds. Or at least, I assume, James, you did in your playthrough. Uh... Yeah, I mean, he sort of, you could see from quite a distance that his eyes had gone completely cloudy. He'd finally zombified up. And I remembered something that he told me right when I first met him, which is, And don't make my mistake. If you see one of those things, uniform or not, you do not hesitate. 
You take it out. Or you run. Got it? So I didn't. I fucking shot his ass. I, ki I killed him there and then. Like, no hesitation. No hesitation. Just... So I, uh, I never actually approached Marvin following him initially giving me the knife. So actually, I like to think canonically in my head that Marvin never actually turned into a zombie, that he just magically recovered because I never got the section where he turns up, does his zombie okay. moan, and Leon obviously, you know, mourns the loss of uh, of Marvin, our only friend in this world, now that we've lost Claire. But, and, you know, Marvin was a good dude. He helped us out. He gave us a knife. <laughs> yeah, that... That was kind of all that he did, really. <laughs> no, he gave us know, a pep talk, some advice. Yeah, he let us look at his laptop real quick, you know. He's a good dude. So, after using the secret passageway inside the main lobby of the police station, we travel underground into an underground facility, and we are promptly grabbed by what is sort of like a massive hulking figure, and repeatedly smashed into the ground until we're sort of knocked from the walkway all the way down into the boss arena. Yes, and this hulking body person thing, whatever it is, has a massive eye on its shoulder. Yeah, it sort of looks like a human that's been stretched out, one arm has become massively huge... And as you say, there's a sort of a staring eye through it out the shoulder that reveals itself once you shoot it a few times. Which reminded me a lot of some of the bosses when they parasite up in Resi 4. Because they sort of get eyes sort of everywhere and, you know, shoot the eye, right? That's the yeah, of course, the name yeah. of the game. Yeah, it's kind of a recurring theme in the Resident Evil series. Massive glowing eyes to shoot. During that area, you have to sort of run around avoiding the swings because he's also holding like a giant pipe and using it as a bludgeoning weapon for you. But as you're running away, you've got to put enough bullets into him whilst avoiding all of the swings. The boss arena does provide you with some health items as well as some ammunition for your gun. At this stage, you will have likely also collected the shotgun from the police station weapons locker, so you'll be using that to good effect on him as well. This is now a really good time as well to make use of some of the rescue items in the game. So rescue items, they were to my knowledge first included in the Resident Evil 1 remake. Fans familiar with the series will be used to the fact that a lot of the enemies in the game, before they're able to damage you, they first grab you. And then in that stage, they'll proceed to start damaging you, usually by biting you. And in the old school games, you had to wiggle the stick as fast as you could to sort of get them to release you. It's changed up in this game where you can sort of try and get out of it and accept the bite and then sort of take quite a bit of damage as a result. However, if you have a knife, you can actually use the knife to prevent yourself from taking damage from the grab. Uh, so at which point do they grab you? A button prompt appears on the screen if you have a, uh, a knife with durability left and then you can sort of use that to stab the zombie or the attacker or in this case the boss. Uh, whenever he does grab you, you can use it to get away from him and occasionally do a little bit of damage as well, particularly if you're using a frag grenade to get away from them. Uh, stun grenades are also really effective because they will blind everyone in the surrounding area. And if a zombie grabs you, you will kind of shove it in their mouth and then you can shoot it in their mouth to make it explode. And that will uh, also net you a little achievement. Yeah, which I didn't do that. I did the knife one. Oh, yeah. And worth noting that when you do the knife one, you don't get the knife back unless you pick it up from their body as well. That's right, yes, yeah. But the grenade thing, yeah, I saw the achievement for, like, shooting a grenade when you put it in someone's mouth. I had no idea how to trigger it, though. I, I didn't really use grenades in this. Yeah, they are, I mean, they are good for saving them for boss fights, particularly the frag grenades, and the flash grenades are particularly good for uh, disturbing the liquors. Although it does send them into a bit of a frenzy mode, they'll typically take that frenzy mode out on the zombies that surround them rather than going after you, which is great. That's really cool, yeah. So after managing to put enough bullets into the first boss, 
boss of the game. He sort of leans over at one of the handrails off one of the platforms and then sort of falls into the darkness. So at that point, we assume we've seen the last of him. Or have we? But now it's a video game and you don't see him die, so he's alive. <laughs> Especially a Resident Evil game. Yeah, exactly. So after successfully defeating the first boss of the game, we proceed on to the police station underground. So we arrive in the underground passage and we meet up with a new character in the game called Ada. Now, Ada is a very mysterious character in the game. She's not really willing to reveal much about herself. Not even her name at this point. <laughs> it's true, yeah. She will not tell Leon who she is. And I think that she either suggests or reveals in this moment or slightly later on in the game that she's actually there in an official capacity for the FBI Yeah. in order to sort of look into all this shady business that's been going on and look more into the virus. However, at this point, we are trapped underground in the police car park because we don't have the key card to unlock the that will allow us to leave the police station. And because this was the late 90s, there was no emergency lock where you press the button and the gate just opens. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And also it wouldn't be much of a puzzle game if uh, everything could be bypassed by realistic logic. <laughs> so it's time to explore the underground of the police station, at which point we also find a man who is locked in a cell. Yeah, an actual man as well, not a zombie man. Not a, a man zombie man. man. He appears to be, a, or at least he claims to be a journalist who has again been looking into uncover the secrets behind this virus outbreak and the corruption that's going on amongst the police department. So he's taking a look around and has found himself imprisoned in a cell. Your conversation is cut short as a grey hand comes crashing through the wall behind him, promptly grabs him by the head and sort of crushes the head within the grip. And this yeah. is another really grisly scene where, you know, you're sort of greeted to a scene where an eye is, is bulging out of a now crushed head. You're not able to get into the cell. So you're sort of left watching him hopelessly uh, as you see him be executed by what looks like an absolutely massive hand. It's clearly not human sized at all. This is an extremely large thing, whatever it is. Yeah, just crushing a skull as if it was a, a nut in a nutcracker. It's pretty intense. So after being unable to escape from the car park, we then progress on to try and turn on the power and enable ourselves to get hold of the key that we need to leave the parking garage. Yeah, which is worth noting is on the corpse of the guy who's had his head crushed. It was his bargaining tool to try and get us to help him out of his cell was, I got this and you need it. Yeah, so to do that, we need to get a couple pieces of circuitry, which we find around that underground area. Uh, we also have to work our way through a kennel, so you get to fight some dog enemies, uh, which is pretty tough enemies to fight, i got to say. During the way that they sort of run at you, they're very fast, and it's hard to get a good bead on them. However, I did find a few cheesy tactics after dying in that area a few times. I was kind of running through really gung-ho, trying to figure out the optimum way of doing it which I think I successfully managed to do. Each of those dogs usually takes about three to four pistol bullets. And if you're able to uh, uh, sort of run through like that, you can very much get the shots quite easily as they do their initial animations entering the room. Because they sort of pause briefly before they start running at you and then jumping at you. They do. And, exactly. if, you, and if you're quick, you can just, as you say, boom, 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 job done. Yeah. Just going back to some of the optional puzzles in this game, uh, so a lot of them will result in you kind of finding weapon upgrades. Uh, so yeah. you can get some really useful ones for your starting pistol in the game. You can get a stock for it that increases your accuracy. You can get a muzzle 
that will enable you to, uh, I, I think it has additional recoil balancing. And if I'm right in thinking, you can also get a uh, attachment for it that actually makes it fully automatic as well. So you can absolutely nail zombies with it. However, um, I would typically avoid using that one because there are better guns in the game to do da damage with. And uh, yeah, typically you don't want to be just sort of using pistol bullets willy-nilly when they're so effective at staggering zombies by shooting them in the head or the leg. And it's a very accurate weapon as well, so it's quite useful to just have those on hand. Yeah, it certainly wasn't my main damage dealer. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's your getaway weapon. <laughs> yeah. So after working your way through the kennels, it's now time to go back to the Raccoon City Police Station and retrieve a few more items there, some of which you'll find a new key to unlock some additional rooms, a few safes as well, which as I mentioned before, will provide you with various weapon upgrades, as well as the STARS badge, which can be used to access the computer inside the STARS room office that you previously couldn't. Secret USB stick in the badge? Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of the items in this game, the key items, you'll be able to examine them, and several of them have dual purposes. The STARS badge being that if you, as James mentioned just then, look on the back of it, you can flick out a USB stick, which you can then use to access the computer in the office. You can also retract that USB stick and use it as a regular old police badge, which you can use to slot into a container, which gives you some additional magnum gun parts, which uh, provides you with quite a significant increase in damage as well as the amount of time that it uh, takes you to sort of really focus in a shot. I don't know whether you discovered this while you were playing, James, but this game has a system where as you sort of focus in and aim your gun, you'll notice that the crosshair sort of closes into a final point. If you fire your gun as the crosshair fully closes into that point, it will do additional stagger damage and potentially even get a critical single shot kill. I did notice that, but I didn't realize that was a mechanic like that if you see what i mean so after coming back from the police station we are actually met with our first encounter with one of the big baddies of the game mr x yeah do you remember that hand from earlier and let me tell you james mr x gonna give it to you, x give it to you. so we finally get to see the full figure revealed that murdered our journalist buddy back there in the cells and the first you know what the first thing i noticed of him was the fucking fedora. Why is he wearing a fedora? He is indeed wearing a fedora. And actually, if you'll notice as you're exploring the police station, there's several fedoras laying around. I guess it's meant to be like an early warning sign that he will be there at some point. But I like to think that he's just really careless with it and he leaves it around the police station all over the place. Well, to be fair, the first thing I did when I saw the fedora was like, I'm shooting that off. Done that. And that's a little achievement for you there. It as well. is, which I didn't realise. So that was quite a nice touch. But just like now, then he's like this bald, grey, scary looking motherfucker. He was a lot more menacing without the fedora on. Just got his duster on then. Looks yeah, sick. exactly. And black gloves covering his giant hands. This dude's like seven foot, eight feet tall, built like the truck from the start of the game. Like, doesn't say anything. Yeah, says absolutely nothing. Barely makes a sound. Bullets are pretty much completely ineffective against him the most you can hope to do is slow him down a little bit but for the most part you aren't able to do any meaningful damage or kill him in any way no you can drop him to his knee that's about as good as you can do and he will stay there for a while but not like forever. 30 seconds enough time for you to run past him and get away because you shouldn't bother engaging this guy no, no yeah this is absolutely an enemy that you should just focus on trying to escape the whole time uh he has some really interesting ai in the way that he pops up 
if you start running around the police station once you've lost him, he'll start honing in on your footsteps and make a beeline towards you. There's only a few rooms in the game where you can actually escape him. There are several safe rooms throughout the game where you can save your game using the typewriter and access your equipment box, which is sort of like an endless box for all of your items. One of the main challenges of this game being item management and making sure that you have enough inventory slots to manage both the things that you need to unlock progress as well as heal yourself and protect yourself. Which actually wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. No, and it, and it does get significantly better as you play because after doing a few of the side missions and progressing the game, you can unlock something like an extra eight complete item slots in the game. You, you, you get a huge inventory compared to what you start with. So earlier on in the police station, a helicopter, actually, you hear it flying overhead as you're walking down one of the corridors, and then you hear it suddenly crash into the building, which prevents you from accessing one of the corridors. After falling down a ladder, you are then sort of stuck behind the burning helicopter in the building and you need to change the routing of the water sprinkler system to extinguish the flaming helicopter. After you've done this, this is actually at the point where Mr. X then appears. So typically you're just walking down the corridor minding your own business and all of a sudden from behind it, in a demonstration of strength, he kind of picks it up with both of his hands and shoves it into the wall. And then from that point onwards, it's just on your ass constantly. This is another encounter where, as well, uh, those rescue items like the flash grenades come real handy uh, if you ever get stuck. And typically, because the police station, the way it's located, there's several routes to get to different rooms. Rather than running past him, uh, unless you are able to stag him, you typically want to just sort of run away from him and run round or take him into an area where it's a wide enough space to get round him rather than trying to tackle him in a in a thin, narrow corridor. Yeah, because it really is sort of maybe four hits and you're dead. That's right, yeah. Like, it's, it's really tough. And every single one of his punches will, like, I don't know if it's meant to knock you to the ground, but it staggers you to such a degree that he's almost certainly going to get at least another one in. Yeah, and also if you're surrounded by any zombies during that animation, you can also be grabbed and then bitten for extra damage. So uh, Now, you yeah. see, and I was very lucky. I never seemed to encounter him around too many zombies. So I got I got very lucky in that regard. Must be all those wooden planks I put over all those windows. That's right. Yeah, that's another system in the game. So zombies will, throughout the game, crash through the glass windows into the corridors and start surrounding you. However, you can find wooden planks that you can then put over windows that are either broken or before they're broken, which will prevent any more zombies coming into the corridors. Very useful for the early game and also another way to save a bit of ammunition because uh, once those windows are barricaded, they are completely locking out all the zombies there you will not have to worry about a zombie coming through that window for the rest of your playthrough so after exploring the police station with mr x hunting us all the time we finally are able to recover the second electronic part that we need to open the jail cell with our journalist friend inside so after successfully managing to unlock the power we managed to recover the parking garage key from our unfortunate journalist Leon then leaves the car park using the ramp along with Ada and you walk out onto the streets of Raccoon City in the heavy rain. After navigating through a little bit, you realise that the road is currently undergoing clearly quite a lot of heavy construction works. It looks like there is a massive underground thing being built there as well. So it's time to duck into Kendo's gun shop. Again, uh, for people that are familiar with the Resident Evil franchise, Kendo is a very recognisable name in the series. Kendo, who works in this gun shop, along with his brother, are both gunsmiths that manufacture a lot of the special guns in the game. We are 
greeted by Kendo as we, I suppose we're technically kind of looting his store because Leon wanders in and gets a few more upgrades for his weapons. I think you get a pretty significant shotgun upgrade in there. And just as you're sort of working your way out through the back of the store, you then encounter Kendo, who is uh, got his shotgun trained on you, making sure that you're not there to do anything nefarious. Yes, even though we just stole him from him, but... He didn't notice, so... He didn't notice, he didn't see it, and I think that all is forgiven. Yeah, except for you then try and kill his daughter, but... Looking behind Kendo, you actually see his daughter that has clearly been bitten by a zombie, and she's on the turn. One of her eyes is completely whited out and blind, and she's kind of pretty incoherent, able to kind of only really coo to her dad. It's a pretty distressing situation. Kendo is very upset about the fact that he, uh, you know, is clearly in the process of losing his daughter. This is, you know, there isn't really much of an interaction here other than the fact that he eventually then just ushers you out after Ada is pretty intent on shooting his daughter. He says that he'll do it himself. He carries her off and retreats back to a room where you then hear two gunshots. One for Kendo, one for his daughter, presumably. What I will say is there's actually an additional bonus mode after completing the game where you can play an alternative reality where Kendo doesn't shoot himself and actually gets a phone call and then decides to then escape Raccoon City instead. So he actually gets to run through the streets playing as Kendo on his final <laughs> escape. It's really cool. That's kind of neat, yeah. It's kind of like, uh, it's a much more action-y version. You've got a lot of zombies coming after you. You're encouraged to use your weapons and pick up items as you go, sort of thing. It's it's getting rid of the puzzle formula and making it an action title using the, the basis of the game for that. So, back to Leon and Ada. So Ada knows that the organization who are responsible for the outbreak is actually a pharmaceutical company called Umbrella. And she tells Leon that they have an underground lab, deep underground, and that the way to access it is actually through the sewer. So on they head through the sewers. Jump straight into a pile of shit, eh? You do, you do. Ada is very reluctant to do any of that. Leon spends a lot of his time crawling through sewer water and, you know, various human substances. Yeah. At this point, you also encounter one of the cooler sections in the game where you're actually, there is a giant sewer alligator that has clearly been affected by this virus and mutated to the point where it is now, you know, at least 10 times the size of uh, any alligator that you typically encounter. You kind of get a glimpse of him stalking through the sewers early on, but eventually you enter in a running section where the alligator is trying to sort of bite you as you're running down a narrow sewer passage you eventually slide down a kind of a sewer ramp and at which point you manage to duck under a pipe which the alligator then bites onto as you turn around you can see that the pipe is marked something like extremely flammable it's clearly a gas pipe of some sort uh, at which point you then shoot it and the head explodes in a very gory fashion as it then slides down the ramp towards you it's yeah it's another cool little cool scene in the game yeah worth noting that this I died to this a few times because I didn't realise initially that you needed to zigzag. That's right, there's a pattern to the bites and you need to avoid the biting as you're being chased by it down the tunnel. Yeah, and I wondered, what the hell is going on? Like, I'm running straight, I haven't... The first few times I hit the boxes on the sides, I was like, okay, that slowed me down, that's what the issue was. No, I hit missed every single one and it still got me and I was like, what the hell? And then it's like, maybe if I just bob and weave, we'll see what happens. Yeah, there's more to this, yeah. So after successfully blowing up the alligator, you move on then to the entrance of the underground, not before you bump into Annette Birkin, who is one of the scientists who's actually working on the G-Virus. So at this point, uh, Annette is very suspicious of you two. She actually fires a bullet, which Leon takes for Ada. And at that point, Leon's pretty incapacitated and unfortunately unable to continue, at which point you assume control of Ada, our secret sexy spy lady. 
This Ada section was pretty cool, actually, because at this point, you still think she's an FBI agent. And she does have some cool gadgetry to sort of back that up, like the whole hacking gun thing that she has, where she can see electrical conduits through walls and hack them through the walls remotely. It was really cool. That's exactly right, yeah. And they don't particularly give you a load of ammunition to deal with it, so this is really where you get to practice a lot of your zombie avoidance whilst you're trying to solve the puzzles. At this point, uh, Annette, after having escaped, uh, you then discover that she is now sitting in the controls for the incinerator room. And of course, uh, this is at the exact moment where you need to head inside the incinerator to retrieve a key item that allow you to progress. A wristband, no less. That's right. So after collecting the wristband, you then look round to see the shutters closing in on you and Annette looking very pleased with herself about to roast you alive. However... As James mentioned previously, Ada is equipped with a very useful hacking tool that enables you to reroute power and you are able to see the power lines through the walls, redirect the power to overload the, I guess they're like generators for the door. Again, this yeah. is kind of like the logic of all of this. It's, it's a very old school machinery, just heavy steel incinerator, but somehow there's electronic circuitry inside that can be hacked, power rerouted. And then inexplicably, there are three generators on the outside of the door that need to be destroyed. And then it all just sort of fails and enters a, a state where the flames come off and the doors open. Video games. Yeah. And you've got to do this within the course of about 30 seconds, I think it is. Maybe it's a little bit longer, maybe a minute or two. But it's it's tense. If you're not sure of how to do the puzzle and you're not really thinking and just panicking, then you might easily catch one of your first deaths to that incinerator. So after her near brush with a fiery death, Ada then escapes the incinerator and continues to pursue Annette Birkin. Leon then awakes. Leon's recovered a little bit from his bullet wound and is now able to go in search of Ada and try and also stalk down Annette Birkin. Yeah, nice little nap. Saw him out. little power nap there will recover any wound. Although one thing I did notice is Ada put her jacket over him to keep him warm and stuff like that, like which you see. When he wakes up, that jacket's f***ed off. It's gone, isn't it? Oh, yes. No, that's a good observation there. A little bit of continuity error there. That's something that I haven't really focused in on either. Yeah, poor. <laughs> so then Leon has to fight his way through a lot of the same areas that Ada was running through previously, at which point you enter the sewer proper and you encounter some of the, the tougher enemies in the game, which sort of look like a further along mutilated version of the boss that we fought initially with the large right arm. And again, I think that they have several sort of eyes around them. They have one extremely large shoulder that if you shoot enough, it then exposes eyes underneath the shell. Once you shoot all of those eyes, there's then a giant eye underneath those. There's so yeah. many eyes within eyes. Yeah, these guys were tough. These guys were tough. There's a section with like three of them. That's right. And then on your way back, another one comes as well. Yeah. And at least one of them is super well hidden because it's sort of ever so slightly submerged under the water. And the way that its body is designed looks like the sort of viscera that's surrounding just in the landscape. That's correct. Yeah. The whole room sort of looks to be filled full of fleshy lumps and things like that. So uh, yeah, they, they do quite easily blend in. And these guys, they're capable of sort of slamming you with their giant arm. They can also grab you, which you can escape from using your knives or your stun grenades or fragmentation grenades. They also have an attack where if you spend enough time standing away from them, they can actually sort of deploy these little parasites into the water that then come swimming after you and can do some damage. At this point, I had the magnum in the game, so I was sort of shooting their arm until I could expose the main eye, and then I just popped it a couple times with the magnum. Also, I think once you've progressed the first time through that area, you eventually recover a flamethrower, which is pretty effective in dealing with these guys as well. 
So at this point, while still exploring the underground facility, we encounter one of the more difficult puzzles in the game, which involves us to collect various plugs that are shaped like chess pieces. There are six in total that can be found and then input into a wall. And you have to sort of read a note on the wall and they explain that, for instance, the bishop and the queen can't be next to each other. And a few other notes in there that sort of suggest which side of the wall that you're supposed to put these plugs into. After finally doing that, you're able to sort of open the main sewer entrance into the Umbrella Hive Hidden Laboratory, which I believe that they call the Nest. Before you descend into the Umbrella Laboratories, you also might have had the opportunity to recover several video cassette tapes that you can have a look and get a little bit of additional backstory. At that point, you can clearly see that there are sort of marine-looking guys donned up in gas masks breaking into the facility, and you're sort of... It's very clear at this point that something bad has gone down underground, and whoever has been making the virus has fallen into some sort of dispute with these guys that are now trying to break in and retrieve the virus. Yes, and the one thing that you do learn that's quite interesting is that this guy's name is William Birkin. Now, does that surname sound at all familiar? That's right. If it does, it's because he is the husband of Annette Birkin. Yes. And also, there's a little bit of a early spoiler here, but he's also the boss that we fought at the initial start of the game. Yes, he is, because in one of the cassette videos, you see that uh, the SWAT team in question shoot him because they they see he's pulling a gun to try and shoot them. And to sort of save himself, he injects himself with some of the G-virus thus making him into the monstrosity that we fought earlier. That's right. So uh, the reason for him turning into that instead of a zombie is because of the fact that the G-virus reacts in different ways to different biological organisms, as well as how it affects them, whether it affects them whilst they are still alive, whether it's transmission through a bite or through a direct syringe application. And it essentially affects different ways. If you are eaten by a zombie, bitten by a zombie, and then you die, you turn into a zombie. However, a direct dose like this, while he's still alive, causes massive mutations instead that turns, you know, that sort of creates a lot of these monstrosities that we've seen in the game so far. So I can only imagine uh, that the things that we were encountering in the sewer, the massive fleshy blobs, were also sort of high-dose injected people, either when they were alive or dead. Presumably, maybe experiments? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. You find out that Umbrella is essentially, they're, they're a pharmaceutical company as a front. They're actually much more interested in where the big money is, which is developing bioweapons. Shady bastards. At this point as well, just before you enter the nest, it's also worth noting that uh, at the end of Ada's little section, she took a little fall and uh, had a nasty little accident that put, like, a spike of metal through her quad. Definitely not what you want when you're trying to escape a zombie-infested hive. Yeah, not at all. And uh, Leon, because he's the gentleman that he is, yanks it out of her really aggressively. <laughs> That's what you're supposed to do, right? You just yank it out. Well, in fairness, he says, like, oh, I don't know if we should take that out. And she's like, look, I'm not going to be able to walk unless you do, so just f***ing do it. And he does. Yeah. So now it's time to finally descend into the Umbrella Nest and try and figure out what the hell's gone on with this whole conspiracy. Yes, with a conveniently placed train <laughs> that takes us down there. That's right, yeah. So Umbrella have established a bit of a train network down in the sewers that will sort of directly cart you all the way to the nest, which is very deep underground. Good job that Ada picked up that wristband from the incinerator, because without that, we ain't getting on no train. Yeah, absolutely. So this wristband is uh, typically worn by an Umbrella employee that will enable them to then access the various labs that we'll be traveling to. 
Now that we're in the lab, it's time to start upgrading our bracelet that we need, because in order to access the wing that contains the G-Virus, we will need to first go through the various levels of security required, and security clearance that will actually enable us to get into the wing that contains the G-Virus. Which, for those that are interested, is the West Wing, security level 3. And typically, uh, we won't be going there first, so we need to first head to the East Wing. So in the East Wing, you encounter various sort of plant-like organisms that look like people with plant-like tendrils wrapped around them. And you have to uh, solve a puzzle where you type in various patterns that you can discover after exploring into a computer keypad. You unlock some doors where you need to retrieve a sample. Uh, this sample is used to spray the plants in the surrounding environment and you need to uh, sort of concoct the mixture as well as freeze it before putting it back into the disperser which then affects the plants in the area, reducing them back so that the person who is trapped behind a bunch of plants and holding the key chip that you need is then released from the grip of the plants. So you're essentially poisoning the plants in the area so that you're able to access the final security clearance chip that you need for your wrist bracelet. So after getting our final lever of security clearance for the time being, we then head over to the West Wing to retrieve the G-Virus. Heading through various decontamination chambers, Leon gets sort of showered and then blast dry and then blasted dry and then showered again on the way out. But he also bumps into Annette Birkin shortly after doing this, who actually suggests to Leon, and for the first time this occurs to him, that Ada might not be telling him the whole truth when she says she's working for the FBI. And in fact, Annette goes on to suggest that she's in fact a mercenary that is just there to steal the G-Virus. Which if I hadn't played Resi 4 beforehand and kind of knew that already would have been like, holy shit. Yeah, you'd have probably just taken Ada for her word. Oh no, I would have done at this point. She yeah. flashed an ID. It's like the first thing she did. And she's yeah, wearing like yeah. an FBI-style overcoat. I was like, hell yeah. So on recovering the G-Virus, Leon discovers Annette, who is injured after being attacked by her husband, now mutated as a result of the G-Virus. As Leon recovers the G-Virus sample, he is then attacked by a now even further mutated version of William Birkin. Yeah, bigger, more eyes. Yeah, more eyes, more appendages. At that point, you're sort of given quite a small area to fight this guy in. You need to put several bullets into him so he enters a sort of staggered phase where he'll stay on the ground for a while, at which point you can run over to a control panel which is connected to a crane. The crane is carrying some very heavy cargo, which can be used to sort of... You move it away from the platform initially by pressing the button damage the boss enough so that they are staggered, and then you press the button again to sort of swing the massive load of cargo into the boss, William Birkin. Once isn't enough to do this, though. You need to do this a second time. So, you know, we repeat the process again of damaging him and pressing the button. Once was enough for me. I got the Chivo for doing it in one. So maybe I damaged him enough first? I, I, maybe. I maybe. Maybe that's yeah. it. Maybe, yeah. Yeah, so the quick way to do it is to do it twice, but I guess if you yeah. put enough bullets into him... Well, I didn't know what I was doing at first. I pushed I pushed the button and saw it go away, and I was like, okay, great. That's awesome. Right, <laughs> what right. What the fuck? Yeah. yeah, it gives you a bit more room to fight, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, and then I was just shooting him. I staggered him, and then I was like, okay, what do I do now? Because I thought that that crate had moved away, and it was like a bridge for me to run away. Yeah, that's right. So yeah. I was like looking around, and I was like, shit, and he got up there again. So then I go. shot him again, and I was like, oh, the only thing I can do is press the button again. And it just so happened he was in a happened spot to be where, standing there. And then I did it and it knocked him and I got the cutscene. There you go. Boss defeated. And surely he's dropped down surely another Surely this time he hole. fell into the darkness again. He's gone. But again, you didn't see him die. Time to head back to the main connecting suite between the two wings. So on emerging from the West Wing, you then go back to the sort of the central connector of the two wings 
where there is a large elevator leading deep down into the depths of the nest. Before you head down into the elevator, though, you bump into Ada. At this point, Leon is now very suspicious of Ada's motivations, and he actually refuses to hand over the G-Virus sample that he collected. Yeah, and this is also a bit of a double whammy, because throughout the interactions that Leon and Ada have during the game, you get the impression there's maybe a little spark or something there. Yeah, it's, it's weird considering how little time they spend together and again the scenario that they're both currently in that they managed to squeeze a bit of romance in but again this is much like the puzzle thing this is kind of this is a plot line developed from a video game that came out such a long time ago that uh to include the main plot points along they have you have to kind of forego a lot of common sense and reasoning in the plot well, you, you say that they've both saved each other's life throughout the, the I like guess at so. one point or another in this they're the yeah. two of the only humans left though. ada saved uh leon quite a couple times in this game she saved him from mr x initially on just as they were escaping the car park she ran into mr x and pinned him against a wall so leon could escape yeah and then, but then he took a bullet for her, so... There you go. Debt repaid. So. Exactly. So, during this conversation, uh, Ada is obviously displeased that Leon will not hand over the G-Virus. Leon's obviously very displeased that Ada's acting shifty. So, they both pull their guns on each other, but they're both unable to shoot each other, as James mentioned before. There's a little bit of a spark there, and they're finding it too difficult. Just as they lower their guns, though, and agree not to shoot each other, Ada then catches a bullet straight to the chest, and Leon turns around to see an injured Annette Birkin holding a gun. So now, with Ada having just taken a bullet in the chest, stuff is really starting to go downhill with the underground facility. After Leon removed the G-Virus, he actually set about a self-destruct sequence following the unauthorised removal of a dangerous bioweapon. Level 4, no less. Absolutely. So, at this point, there is a lot of stuff crumbling. Ada has just taken a bullet, and as the walkway crumbles, Ada begins to fall. At that point, Leon reaches down to try and save her, uh, and Ada seems very, kind of, unbothered about trying to save her own life. She's sort of just limply standing there, telling Leon that it's too late. We also see at this point that uh, the G-Virus has also fallen down into the depths. According to Annette, she is very satisfied that no one will be able to get the G-Virus. However, you know, if anyone's familiar with the ongoing story of the game, we'll find out that that's not at all the case. Yeah, as I've been saying all throughout this episode, you see the G-Virus drop into a dark hole, but you never see it die. So in a very uh, uh, touching moment, Leon is, is calling out, trying to get Ada to save herself, trying to pull her up. However, she lets herself slip from his grasp and fall into the darkness herself, never to be seen again. But do you see her die? No. <laughs> no, you don't. So, uh, following this encounter and Leon losing Ada, he then stands up and it's time to use the main elevator to get down deeper into the facility and finally escape. And again, in very typical video game fashion, as soon as you get to the bottom of said elevator, timer comes up. You've got 10 minutes to escape, motherfucker. Yeah, so much like the original, you get a now a timed ending, which forces you to kind of run through the rest of the game. Uh, typically at this point, you're pretty well armed up though, so zombies and any plant type people that are getting in your way shouldn't be too much of a hassle if you're armed with the magnum or the flamethrower or even the shotgun, just taking them out by knocking them over. It's all good here. So after following the elevator down and now trying to escape, Leon runs into a control room and is actually able to see Claire from the beginning of the game standing with a child, it appears, looking like she's also trying to escape. And they are briefly able to establish a little bit of contact where they kind of, they recognise that both of them are both now down in the nest after being separated at the start of the game. What a coincidence! 
yeah. both of them, after being separated in a fire down the street, both ended up in the police station and now, coincidentally, also down in the nest. Yeah, odd that. However, the transmission is cut short as due to the decaying facility and imminent destruction of the facility, the video feed is cut. Time to continue our escape with the timer counting down past a few more enemies where we come into a large elevator platform, which is now time to take down to the rail that will allow us to escape from the facility. A large circular elevator platform, James. If that ain't a boss arena, if I've ever seen one. Yeah, the second I saw this, I was like, fuck. And this is now time to fight the fully mutated form of William Birkin. Mega Chad version. The Mega Chad version, that's right. He's now got several additional appendages, extra arms. He's also able to pounce at you, attack with like a flurry of sweeping attacks that you've got to avoid. He also has several eyes around him, which is, uh, again, quite useful for popping. Yeah, he's got, the, he's got the frog spawn chest eye as well. It's like a sort of... Frog spawn is really the best way to it describe really, yeah, it. Yeah, it's just like a load of massive eyes all grouped together. Yeah. And he only exposes those once you've done enough damage to him or if you manage to pop all of his eyes. So the easiest way that I dealt with this boss fight, and I genuinely did it in about 30 seconds or less, was from the starting position, if you pop the eyes in the right order, he will expose all of them to you. And then at that point, he drops to his knees. And as you say, the sort of frog spawn eyes on his chest open up. And then I just offloaded all of my magnum shells into it. Uh, and then it took maybe just like a few more shotgun blasts to finish him off. Finn, very quickly. And if you keep on the attack, I found that he wasn't really too active. He'd do some of these sweeping and jumpy attacks that you're talking about, but it wasn't like too bad. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a boss that will catch you unprepared if you get greedy and you try and put too many shots in it as you try and retreat. But typically, as long as you keep your spacing and you're able to anticipate what kind of moves he does, again, this is a kind of... The main thing is to not get yourself trapped in a corner or get pinned anywhere where you can't escape from. Exactly. Spacing is key, like you said just there. Spacing is the name of the game with the boss fights in this, really. 100%. And also, it hugely benefits you in terms of managing the zombies as well. You know, the zombie's never going to bite you if you're down the corridor from it, taking your time to get that sight lined up and making sure that the crosshair pulls in for each of those shots. That's probably the most effective way of not taking any damage. Yeah, none of them are quick enough to actually catch you should you get past them as well, so... But yeah, so we, so we beat his big ass. <laughs> Absolutely, spanked Birkin. Uh, and on escaping, we sort of continue our route outside of the facility, where we are once again now stopped by Mr. X, who's decided to show up after all of our troubles that he's given us in both the police station and the underground. This guy just won't give up. Will not give up. He's obviously been, you know, quite affected during uh, the escape as well. He's managed to set himself on fire, which has caused his arm to mutate into like a heavily biologically weaponized fist that has like sharp edges to it and stuff like that. He really comes after Leon, and uh, this is uh, this is another quite difficult section where you essentially just have to keep damaging him and staying alive in the point that you're running around another elevator whilst rubble is landing. You've got to avoid all of his attacks. He does have one one-hit attack where he'll sort of charge up. He runs towards you with his claw in the ground, creating a load of sparks, and then he kind of plunges it through your chest. And uh, yeah, if you got caught by that, it's game over. However, after finally managing to outlast and survive the current onslaught by Mr. X, we're finally able to escape and subdue him enough so that we're able to leave the facility. So as you're ducking and diving, Mr. X on the elevator 
after eventually doing enough damage, a figure appears and a familiar voice says something like, thank me later, and the figure kicks down a rocket launcher for Leon that he is now able to pick up on the elevator platform in the style of every Resident Evil game, the final boss is always finished with, I say every every Resident Evil game, I'm sure there probably is an exception or two to the rule, but you always get to finish off your boss with a mysteriously dropped rocket launcher, which Leon then proceeds to do. Yeah, the cutscene rocket launcher is OP. We love it. Love a finishing cutscene rocket launcher. This then reduces Mr. X into a sort of like, I mean, his entire upper half is gone. It's just like a fleshy mass with two legs <laughs> sticking out of it at that point. Uh, so I think we can safely assume that we're now done with Mr. X for the time being. It's now time to get to the bottom of that elevator and get our asses to the goddamn rail train station. Where the train is leaving as we arrive. Just leaving as we arrive. Uh, thankfully, Leon is able to hop on the train, where he then sees that Claire is also on board, along with the child that he saw inside the cutscene. Big old emotional reunion here. Big old emotional reunion. Everyone's very happy to see each other. Yeah, they don't hug it out, though, weirdly. They don't hug it out, no. I guess that, I mean, uh, Leon is kind of, he's just been bereaved, technically, seeing as he's such a puppy dog, he falls in love with someone, you know, over the course of a couple hours. Mind you, I suppose he's probably technically uh, already into a, a sort of a fairly non-committal relationship with Claire, given that they've now known each other for all of about 20 minutes combined. Oh yeah, and they were kind of flirting as well at the start. They were a little, yeah. So at that point, everyone is reunited and they are on their way safely out of the facility that is exploding behind them. They haven't been able to recover the G-Virus sample, however, all of them would hopefully have enough evidence and a corroborating story to bury Umbrella. Maybe, maybe, unlikely, but maybe. Probably not, but yeah. Welcome to corporate America, as Ada says. Yeah. <laughs> so, just before the final credits roll and you get your mission completion scene, however, you are greeted to a little scene where you can see a train door being forced open by some sort of tentacle evil creature. So then shortly following that little glimpse into, uh, you know, the perhaps not so happy ending of the game, you are then able to unlock the second scenario of Resident Evil, which is uh, a scenario that you can then choose to play with Claire, at which point you'll be able to play the game through with various different sort of puzzles and additional areas, different storyline beads. Uh, they've kind of sort of redone the game again, where you are essentially navigating a lot of the same areas, just doing things slightly different. So I think at that point, after completing the game, uh, and we've actually been able to do this in a single episode, I think that next week, James and I are due to take on the Claire campaign for Resident Evil 2 Remake and finally get that true ending. What was the tentacle creature trying to do inside the train? I don't think it was anything good. Was it Birkin? Was it Ada? And who was that mysterious child that Claire was with? Who knows? Questions that will all be answered next week. And with that, we come to the end of this week's episode of Total Pod Mode. If you've made it this far, listeners, we appreciate you. Thank you very much for sticking out. If you've enjoyed what you've listened to, you can, as always, find the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts by searching for Total Pod Mode. We also post regular video content of our playthroughs, stream highlights, as well as the podcast on our YouTube channel, Total Pod Mode. You can also find us on Twitter by searching for at Total Pod Mode, all one word. And whilst you're there, you can find me at Mr. Bames, and I'm also on Twitch under twitch.tv forward slash Mr. Bames underscore TPM. And you can find me at Hoodafunk on Twitter, and I'm also on Twitch under twitch.tv forward slash Hoodafunk. Will, it's been a pleasure as always. As always, buddy. I'll see you next week. Until next week, listeners. 
Thank you for joining us. Thanks again for listening another week. We appreciate you. We really do. And we look forward to speaking to you all again next week. So until then, goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.